a Lord Jesus. So easily our hearts fail to love as you have loved us. So easily our hearts grow cold even toward you, the great lover of our souls. Would you this morning help us to be once again in awe of the love that you have shown us on the cross. Make us into a community that lives by that love among us. And would you even encourage us this morning that though our love may fail, that yours surely does not. Would you do this and so many other things by your word, we pray in your mighty name, amen. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus, he said. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Those are the words from former pastor Joshua Harris, author of the book, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, formerly bestseller book. Uh, he was a very well-known pastor in our kind of stripe of churches that just this last week declared he was no longer a Christian. Uh, New York Daily News, never one to miss a headline, puts it this way. Pastor and author Joshua Harris has kissed Christianity goodbye. Now, that's a very discouraging headline for many of us this morning. It's not a strange uh, category that Christians would have to deal with, though. The question of what do you do when someone you love, someone you look up to, maybe even someone that you learned from about the faith, what do you do when they walk away from their faith in Jesus? What does a Christian do with that? Has the love of Jesus failed? Is the, all the things we believed about the transforming power of the gospel, have they been destroyed? You know, I, uh, my seminary graduation had two very well-known speakers at it. Within two years, both of them had destroyed their ministry and walked away from their faith. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure you can conjure to your mind faces and people that you've known and loved, maybe that sat next to you in the pew, or maybe that you have had in your family that have one time believed in Jesus, and as of now, well, not so much. What do we do with that? Well, it's a heavy topic to be sure, and yet God's word, so timely, so effective. When I got into my study this week and I saw the passage in front of us, uh, I could not help but notice the Holy Spirit's guidance even in the sermon text for this Sunday. We come to a very well-known passage, the betrayal of Jesus from Judas and the failure of Simon Peter and even his pledge to never abandon Jesus. As we look at this passage, we are going to see that even though our love so, so often fails, that his does not. That we should not lose heart even if some fall away. That there is love still for us, sinners like us. And that Jesus is still the savior he claims to be. We'll see that in three sections. First in 18 through 30, we'll see the betrayal of love. The example of Judas walking away from Jesus whom he has walked with and heard so much from the betrayal of love. Then 31 through 35, we'll see the command of love. How this community of Christians that Jesus is creating will be actually be glued together 
by love itself. And then finally, the redemption of love in 36 through 38. What do we do when our love fails? Well, we find out his love doesn't. Let's begin in 18 through 30, the betrayal of love. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are many children, even today, with biblical names. You have lots of Peters, lots of Johns, lots of Marks and Matthews, and yet you have almost no Judases. I think that's a, a sign of parental wisdom there. And, and indeed, Judas has become a kind of synonym for the worst of all betrayals. To, to be a Judas towards someone is to stab them in the back. Where does that come from? Uh, obviously, a very well-known section of Jesus' life. But we have before us John 13. We are at the uh, last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life. He and his disciples are in a room celebrating a Passover meal. The clock is winding down on Jesus' earthly life. How will he use this time? Well, John tells us that he's going to use it to love his disciples to the end. Included in that group of disciples, though is one disciple that the whole time never really had given his heart to Christ. Judas, though he was one of the original 12, though he had been with Jesus as he did all of the great miracles in John's gospel, he had seen Jesus turn water to wine, he'd seen him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, he'd seen him give the blind sight seen him walk on water. Judas, who had seen all these things, and he even done ministry on Jesus' behalf. He, he was part of the team that was sent out to preach and to cast out demons and do miracles. Judas, who had sat at the feet of Jesus, who heard the very words from his mouth. Judas, whose very feet were washed by Jesus. This Judas, this whole time, has been on a dark road leading him away from Jesus. A dark road with many exit ramps that he has been ignoring, one after the other, until finally there will be none left. And all that will remain will be darkness. Back in chapter 12, Jesus had warned a group of religious Jews that were not receiving his word. He told them to walk while it is light, lest the darkness overtake you. What we're going to see in the example of Judas is what happens when someone rejects the very love of Jesus and how darkness envelops their soul. We see there in verse 18, Jesus has just gotten done washing the disciples' feet. And he gives the first of three more warnings. There'll be four total warnings, one last week that we'll come back to. But three more warnings to Judas about the road he's on and about the end of that road, the eternal consequences for his soul. Verse 18, Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 41 where David is lamenting someone that was so close to him that he had eaten his very bread. In other words, uh, someone that he shared a fellowship meal with. And yet this very person betrayed that close relationship. They lifted their heel as if to harm him. 
Jesus applies this, this pattern in David's life of being betrayed by the closest to him to say that one of the 12 is going to betray him. Now, this isn't the first time he's warned this. Back in chapter 6, after he had fed the 5,000, he had talked to the disciples. He said, did I not call each one of you except one of you is a devil? That was a small warning sign to Judas. Judas, Jesus knows what direction your heart is going. We already spoke about the warning in chapter 12. More immediately, though, there's what Jesus said as he washed the disciples' feet. After he did that, he, he said and in verse 10, and you are clean, but not every one of you. That's Jesus saying, Judas, Judas, your heart is not where it needs to be. Your allegiance is not with me, and I know this is a chance, Judas. Take the exit ramp off of this dark road you're on. Repent. Come to the light. But Judas will not. How did this process all get started? Look in verse 2 of chapter 13. John told us that this was already in motion. He said, during the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Even in the lead up to the story, the author John wants us to remember this plot that is in Judas's heart and where it's going to lead in Jesus to the cross. Now we're not told exactly how it is that Judas came to this conclusion that he would betray Jesus. Uh, maybe it was a thought like, well, you know, there's so much potential Jesus could have if he would just leverage his position for political power. Just think of what he could do on seating the Romans. So maybe it was disappointment for that. Or, or maybe we know Judas loved money. Maybe it was thinking thoughts like, if only Jesus would just ask people to support his ministry. Just think of how much more money we could have. And that led him down this dark road. Whatever the thought was, what's important is where the thought came from. Do you notice what it said? This thought to betray Jesus was put into his heart by the devil. And we live in a day and age in which people trust their own thoughts and feelings and gut takes on things so much so that they measure all, all of the rest of the world by what they think. And yet here we have an example of someone's thoughts actually not being their own. Their thoughts actually being the reason why they will continue down this dark path until they are enveloped by darkness. Judas has had a thought. Maybe at first it was not all that plausible, but he entertained it. Soon that thought sprouted into an action. One day that action blossomed into an eternal destiny. What we see in the example of Judas is what happens when a heart closes itself off to the, the love of Jesus and all that remains is darkness. As the narrative continues in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. That means that his, uh, he had a little fire in his eyes, his nostrils were flaring a little bit and he said, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. What he's been hinting at, now he's going to make it explicitly clear. Maybe before they were tiny little unlit signs, and now it's a giant neon flashing sign. 
Judas, I know what you are about to do. Now, as usual, the disciples are totally clueless. And 22 through 25, they're, they're confused. No one understands what Jesus is doing. Uh, Peter, he, he motions for the disciple closest to Jesus. So they were kind of seated with their elbows toward a table, laying down on the floor. That was probably the, the writer of this gospel, John, the apostle John. Peter motions for him, hey, ask Jesus, who it is he's talking about? Who's going to betray him? Uh, the one time Peter's not willing to speak up publicly, it seems like. So John asks Jesus, and, and Jesus says in verse 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, if this was a Passover meal, that word for morsels, probably some herbs that would have been dipped into kind of a common dish full of like a fruit puree of some sort. And the disciples may not have understood what Jesus was doing, but make no mistake about it, Judas would have known exactly what Jesus was doing. There was a cultural expectation that the person seated to the left of the Lord of the feast or the person of honor would have the place of honor. The fact that Jesus can give this morsel to Judas while he, the way he's leaning means Judas is seated right next to Jesus in the place of honor. And not only that, there was a cultural expectation that when the person of honor gave a morsel, a particularly tasty bit of food to somebody, that was also a type of special honor. This is Jesus giving Judas such honor and love, even more so than when he washed his feet so that Judas had no mistake what was happening in this moment. Jesus was showing Judas one last exit ramp before the brakes come off until the end of the line. Judas must have felt as if time itself had slowed down as Jesus' hand dipped into the dish, then lifted up and offered him that bit of food. In that moment, the final chance for a soul to embrace the light that Jesus was, was offered. And in his action to take that morsel and to close off his heart to Jesus, Judas ensured there would be no more sunrises in his heart, only eternal darkness. John tells us in very sobering words what happens, verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. I'm sorry, I skipped uh, verse 26. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now Satan's not just giving him thoughts and ideas that he chooses to act on. The very prince of demons, the great embodiment of evil, God's great enemy actually possesses this poor soul. And from there forward, all hope is lost. Jesus understands that a shift has taken place. He tells them, what you are going to do, do quickly. In other words, Judas, you have made up your mind. You have passed the last exit ramp, so the brakes off, pedal to the metal. Judas, do what you are going to do. 
Now verse 26 and 27, the, uh, um, 28 and 29, the disciples once again have no clue what's going on. No one at the table knew why he said this to them. Some thought because Jesus had, uh, the Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that we should give something to the poor. Uh, they probably thought that Jesus was telling Judas, go out and give alms as is the pattern on Passover for uh, some rabbis to do. They're, they're not picking up on what's going on. And yet Judas knows exactly what's going on. Judas realizes at this moment that he has chosen what side he is on. He has chosen the road he will go down. And from now, it's just a matter of time until he reaches the end of the line. Look at verse 30. I think it's the most sobering verse in the whole Bible. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. It was night. As one commentator put it, the dark sky was not the only thing that was black on that night. John's gospel has again and again presented Jesus as the light of the world, the only hope that sinners have before a holy God. And what we see in the example of Judas is that one day, if a sinner persists in their rejection of Jesus, that that light will be taken away. One day there will come an eternal night, a night after which a soul will know no more day breaks, a night that ends with nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth out of the presence of a loving God and instead under his wrath. Judas is here as a warning to all that hear the words of Jesus, that see a glimmer of the light of the world, that you must embrace the light while it is day because one day the darkness will come. Judas' example is particularly painful because of how close he was to Jesus. Or you might say how much light he had. How many examples he had of Jesus' love and power. How clearly he had heard his teaching. As one Puritan put it, it's the sweetest wine that makes the strongest vinegar. Those who are closest to Christ and reject him are those that will be judged the most harshly and those that will hurt the most when we watch them walk away. Now, as a believer, there are multiple applications that we should take from Judas. I I know his life is in some ways unique. No one else is termed the son of perdition. Judas is prophesied to uh, have this role to betray Jesus and lead him to the cross. And, And yet, in some sense, anyone that rejects the love of Christ finally, as in the, the end of their life is rejection of Christ, Judas is a model of the terrible price that will be paid. So as believers in Jesus, one of the things we must resolve in our hearts is to not pay that price. Now, we, we know that it may seem to us right, or it may even feel right to believe a certain thing, and yet if that thing is contrary to God's word, what's revealed about Jesus and his word, about sin and salvation and the holiness of God, it doesn't matter how good that feels or how right it seems in our minds, our desire should be to let God's word correct our thinking. If Judas had only taken that thought and brought it to the feet of Jesus and let Jesus correct that misapplicate, that, that wrong way of thinking, how different things could have been. 
Romans 12 tells us we're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Instead, we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. The front lines for Christianity is your thought life. There are so many different ways that your thought life could lead you away from Christ. Each one of us has a different front in that battle. And yet each of us must be diligent to bring every thought and make it captive to Christ to allow his word to change even the assumptions we bring into our heart. Now, Judas is one example of someone that walked away from Jesus, but, but there's plenty of examples, even in the New Testament, of people that do the same thing in the, the different era after Jesus has risen from the dead. One example you can study when you go home this afternoon would be Demas, uh, second, uh, second uh, Timothy 4, verse 10. Demas was one of the, Paul's uh, companions, and Demas abandoned Paul and abandoned Jesus at the most critical juncture of all. Uh, his particular journey was a little different. His was love of the world that led him to abandon Christ. We as believers need to resolve in our hearts that we will never abandon Christ. That there's, that is a price that's too terrible to pay. As hard as it may be, as much rejection as may, we may receive in this world, that we will stick with Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I certainly hope that you feel welcome and that people are treating you well. But I, I want you to hear the warning that Jesus has given multiple times, uh, first to some religious people, then to Judas, and, and now to you. Don't assume that you will have in front of you the desire to know of Jesus forever. You need to walk while it's light. If you keep on rejecting Jesus one day, that desire will be taken from you. There will be a last exit ramp in your journey through this world. And the question is, will you take the one God has put in front of you? Will you embrace Christ? Will you trust that he is the salvation that you need by taking your sins for you on the cross? Or will you reject him another time until one day it's the last time? Friend, that's the worst of all mistakes that anyone could ever make. Don't make the mistake that Judas made. Embrace Jesus while the light is still in your heart. Embrace Jesus, maybe even today. Now, one other application we need to make as believers is obviously, what do we do when we see other people walk away from the faith, like Pastor Harris? I think there's a, a place we believers need to become comfortable with that is both sorrowful and yet hopeful. See, at some, one level, we need to be so filled with love and compassion, even for those that have abandoned Christ, that it brings a tear to our eyes, that it, it, as it did for me this week, it just tears you up on the inside. And yet at the same time, we can't give into despair as if someone's rejection of the love of Christ somehow undoes what it is Jesus accomplished on the cross. Remember, Jesus told us that he knows his sheep and that no one will take them out of his hand. So let me give you a couple texts that will be helpful to orient yourself to be both sor sorrowful and hopeful as you process someone, maybe even that you love or looked up to, walking away with Christ from Christ. First would be 1 John 2.19. This same author, John, wrote a letter to a church in which a number of prominent teachers abandoned the congregation and thereby abandoned Christ. And he wanted to make sure they understood what was happening. He said this, 
they, speaking of the teachers, went out from us, that they abandoned us, they abandoned Christ, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. In other words, God is even doing something through those who walk away from their faith in Christ. He is helpfully revealing those who are genuine Christians and those who were never Christians in the first place. Now, we need to remember that we do not see hearts and we don't see the end of people's lives the way God does. None of us have that perfect, omniscient knowledge. So we need to be humble and act on the things we can see, which is the fruit in people's lives and the things they claim to believe. And yet we also need to not despair when someone rejects Christ, as if that was something foreign to the Bible. It took Jesus by surprise. Now we remember that even Jesus in this very passage predicted that this was going to happen. Look, look back at chapter 13 of John and uh, verse 19. Jesus says the same reason why this is happening. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So one of the things that we take comfort in even as we grieve for the person that left, is God is still sovereign, that God is still working his purposes among us. And we now have clarity how we can love this person because we now know that they are not a Christian. We now know that we need to call them to repent and believe in Jesus. All right, well, that's a heavy, heavy thing to see this betrayal of Jesus from Judas and to know that his heart had so many opportunities along the way to embrace Jesus and turn from his sin. But that's not the only thing we see in this passage. It's not all doom and gloom. We also see this beautiful vision of what Christians are supposed to be about. Not just the betrayal of love, but in 31 through 35, our second point, the command of love. The command of love. You know, it's almost as if the air has left the room while Judas was around. And now that Judas has left, People can finally breathe again. Uh, maybe you've ever had that experience or someone that puts you on edge for whatever reason. Uh, and as long as they're inside of the conversation, you just feel a little bit tense. And uh, as much as you like them, it's just the reality of it. And then when they walk out of the room, you can, oh, okay, I can breathe again, right? It's almost as if that's happened. Now that the, the church is, the, the gathering of believers here is purified. Now that it's just his this true disciples, Jesus can get to the thing that his heart is most burdened for. Look what he says in 31. And when they had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified as God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus says, now is the time. Now is the time, my little children, a sign of affection. My glory is going to be seen. And of course, Jesus is talking about what's coming on the cross. The paradox of how the glory of God is seen in the shame of a naked, beaten, bruised man dying because of lack of air on a Roman cross. And yet this is what the Son of God came to this earth to do to die as a sacrifice for sins, 
to show us the true measure of God's love. Jesus tells them, my hour is here. I'm about to depart and you won't be able to follow. That's as he's been teaching again and again that this moment is coming and he won't be with them on this earth for much longer. And then in 34 and 35, he turns to what this means for them as a community of believers. I'd sum it up in two ways. His love is going to be the glue and the glory of the community of Christians. His love will be the glue and the glory. First, the glue of verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I'm sure you know that command very well. Everyone remembers it. Christians are to love each other. And yet think about what is it that keeps Christians together, whether it's through suffering or persecution or a culture that shifts on them or any other calamity in this world. The, the thing God chiefly uses to keep Christians together is his love as expressed through other Christians. That love where they show up in the middle of the night to pray with you in the midst of tragedy. The love where they give of their means to support your family when, they are, when you're in real financial trouble. That love that allows you to befriend someone that otherwise you would probably have nothing to do with because you're so different. That love is going to be the very thing that keeps this community together. Now, Jesus says this is a new commandment. Uh, if you're a sharp Bible reader, you may be saying, how is it new? I mean, um, the Old Testament, we were told that you're supposed to love your neighbor. A place like Leviticus 19, Jesus, uh, God said that you were supposed to love your neighbor instead of hating your enemy. How, how is this new co commandment new? Well, it's new because a new era is dawning. God's people are no longer going to be ethnic, no longer going to be a nation. They are now going to be made up of people from all over the world. Everyone that has experienced this love of Jesus. <clears throat> this new era is a new covenant in Jesus' blood. And it means this people will love each other with a new standard of love. The love measured by the cross. The glue that holds this community together is the love of Jesus. And there's no other standard by which Christians are to love each other. The, the second thing, though, it's not just the glue, it's also the glory. That is that this is how the world is going to know what Jesus is like. The way Christians love each other. Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I don't know if you go to a football game or another sports game, if you've ever seen one of those uh, times where they, the crowd is given posters and they, they hold them up and each one just has a, different, a color on it. And on their own, it just looks like a poster with some color on it. But when you hold them all up simultaneously and you have an aerial view, it's a picture of a bulldog or of a, a gator or of whatever the mascot is, right? In that moment, a person sitting in that stadium their individual poster is a part of a much bigger picture. Jesus is saying something very similar here about how the church loves each other. As Christians love each other in the same way that Jesus loved them, is going to serve as a model for the whole world to know about Jesus. That as the world watches, those who have been washed by Jesus, they'll be actually able to learn something about the Lord that we serve. Now, if you're a Christian, 
That means one of the reasons that you go to a small group, one of the reasons why you have friendships that are, get to a level of accountability and really knowing and loving each other, uh, one of the reasons you engage in charity to other believers is because it shows something of Jesus' love to the world around you. I mean, I don't know about you, maybe there's a Wednesday where you don't particularly feel like hanging out with other Christians, and yet by going and being engaged in your small group and praying and really bearing each other's burdens, you're actually showing something of what Jesus is like to the world around you that doesn't know him. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope your journey in learning about Jesus has been fruitful. I don't know if you've done this tactic or not. Jesus is inviting you to watch us. If you want to learn about Christianity, read the Bible. But more than that, get to know some Christians. Watch how they live. Ask them questions. Why is it that you do that? And according to Jesus, you should be able to learn something about him by the way Christians live. Now, let me just give you a caveat to that. I think this is best done in the flesh and not online. I don't want you to get social media sketches that are inaccurate. Um, no Christian will be perfect in showing you a picture of Jesus. But I think Christians that you get to know in real life will maybe be a little more effective than social media posts and headlines that you may see about Christians. I hope you would take this invitation to watch us. And brothers and sisters, I hope you would be open to someone transparently watching the way you live to learn something about the Savior you serve. Well, I don't know about you. I know that that's a high standard. In fact, I know it's one that I don't live up to regularly, and I'm sure the rest of you are in the boat with me. So the question is, not only are we being discouraged by those who walk away from the faith, now we've multiplied that discouragement by not living up to this standard of sacrificial love that Jesus has for each other. Is there any encouragement at all in this passage? Well, thankfully we have verses 36 through 38. Because we're going to see it even though our love so often fails, that his does not. Verses 36 to 38, the redemption of love. Once again, Peter spectacularly fails. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Again, Peter, at the very least, is ignorant and thick-headed, not understanding what Jesus is saying. But then he really sticks his foot really far into his mouth in verse 37. Because Peter makes some promises. He writes some promises, uh, some checks that his uh, heart is not able to keep. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Oh, Jesus, I'll go die with you. Even if this guy is going to betray you, I will stick with you. All the zeal in the world and not the heart to back it up. Jesus' response is heartbreaking. Verse 38, he answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Oh, Peter. Oh, Peter, you, you don't know what you're saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This promise that Peter made in haste will, will be the very words that will come back to condemn him when he fails the test, when he also betrays Jesus at his moment of greatest need. 
Peter does not have the heart to stick with Jesus. He fails the test of love. And yet, even in his failure, we see something so beautiful. We see the power of Christ's love to woo someone back that has earned nothing of the Savior's love. You see, Peter would not make good on his promise, but Jesus will make good on every one of his promises. Peter would not lay down his life for Jesus, and yet Jesus would lay down his life for Peter. After Jesus is dead and buried and raised from the dead, he will come back and extend again an unearned hand of love to Peter to restore him, to bring him back into the fold and in so doing show us the sort of redemptive love that he has for sinners that fail spectacularly like you and me. I don't know what circumstances have happened in your life this week. My guess is that I don't have to go digging for you to be aware of areas that you have failed to live up to this calling to love people the way Jesus loved them. We fail with our words. We fail with our actions. We fail with the thoughts we entertain in our minds. Even those thoughts that we entertain to the point that they start to sprout into actions and that one day could even, if left unchecked, blossom into an eternal destiny. And yet the good news here is that in the midst of all our failures, Jesus does not fail. He accomplishes that which he said he would do. He keeps his sheep, even if for a time they wander. Peter shows us an example that the love of Christ can restore, yes, even those that have seemingly walked away from Jesus, that his love can even woo back someone that's betrayed him. You know, we don't know people's hearts. We certainly don't know what the last day of their life will be or the state of their hearts on that day. And that means we Christians ought to have the most hope of any that Jesus is not done in someone's life until they are, they've left this world. When we see someone walk away from the faith, our response shouldn't just be to write them off and to say, okay, well, they're just some wicked sinner. No, we should plead with them. We should pray for them. We should persist in the hope that God might not be done with them and might even use us to convince them to come back. It's one of the reasons why we as a church are committed to church discipline. It's not because we're trying to shame people. It's because we hold out this hope that maybe even that final act of us as a church body, as hard as it may feel, it might be what God uses to wake someone up to the road they're on, to get them to take the off-ramp before it's too late. See, sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to clearly warn people that their actions or the things they say they believe, that they, those th aren't the sorts of things that a Christian does. That if they persist in those things, it means they are not a Christian. Now, we don't say any of that lightly, this week, the news from Joshua Harris was extremely discouraging. I, I admit that. To think that someone that you benefited from their teaching, someone who you looked up to, could 
walk away from Christ, that should rock us a little bit. And yet, ultimately, our faith is not built on the faith of Joshua Harris or any other teacher. Our faith is built on the love of Jesus. And that means though we may fail to love each other, though some may fail to stay with Jesus to the end and be proven to be not Christians in the first place, the love of Jesus does not fail. And so we are all simultaneously sorrowful and hopeful that Christ might not be done with anyone. Joshua Harris posted his exit from the Christian faith very publicly on social media. So one of his mentors thought it would be appropriate to post very publicly a letter appealing to him to take the exit ramp, to turn back, come back to Christ. His name is Michael Ferris. He's a well-known attorney. He's been a mentor of Joshua's for decades. In this letter, he wrote this. He said, Jesus told us there would be false prophets and teachers among us. Your story doesn't invalidate Christ's message because he predicted that people would do exactly what you have done. I just didn't expect it would ever be you. Jesus is real. He doesn't want you to return to your prior formulas. He wants you to come to him for the first time and learn to love. I'm praying for you, Josh, with love and sorrow, Mike Ferris. Brothers and sisters, this is a sobering text. Thought that a heart could have the very light of Christ taken away in a final way. Walk while it's light. Maybe this morning all you can muster is to look up to the cross of Christ. Maybe you can't even muster to tell anyone about the struggle of where your soul is, but you can by faith look up to Jesus. I want to close with the words from a song that we sang earlier, Christ a sure and steady anchor. How it speaks to even the coldness and darkness of our hearts. Christ the sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, oh my soul now, lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance See his love forever proved. All our hope is in the anchor. It shall never be removed. Let's pray.